This week on the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm talking to physiotherapist and osteopath Yarp Switters about the clinical management of male chronic pelvic pain. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast for another week, the podcast about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. And just a reminder, this is a discussion aimed at health professionals and health professional students. So you should always seek the guidance of a qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your own health or a medical condition. So this week, I'm talking to physiotherapist and osteopath Yarp Switters about male pelvic health, specifically about chronic pelvic health and prostatitis, although that's a term we're about to discover is an old term, but uh, we'll let Yarp explain that one. I'm really happy that we've got this topic on the podcast. We're moving, not that it's not important, but moving away from just talking about perhaps musculoskeletal and anatomical topics, for example, into more broad topics in physiotherapy. And Yarp's uh, going to be a really interesting interview to have here. So Yarp owns a clinic in Vienna, Austria, and he has an undergraduate degree uh, and a master's degree in physiotherapy, and he has a degree in osteopathy. So he's a physiotherapist and an osteopath, and he has a special interest in both musculoskeletal injuries and in male chronic uh, pelvic health. So I'll just um, explain as well that Yarp is a good friend of mine and we did our masters together. So we're going to use this as an excellent excuse to catch up. So Yarp Switters, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thank you, Luke. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a big honor. Oh, it's, sure. Honor's mine. So it's good to catch up again. So let's explain how we know each other. So we studied in the University of South Australia. We did our masters yeah. together over there. So... 2008, uh, long yeah. time ago. <laughs> it is now. It's gone, seems like yesterday. And what have you done since then? You've been, so you've been working in clinics and so, yeah, tell so, uh, about yourself. So after finishing my master's degrees at the UniSA, I moved back to Europe and I moved to Austria, Vienna. Um, worked there and, and, and also in a clinic with many, mainly ortho um problems or injuries so we're working with a doctor as well specialized in the knee so saw so many acls many knee operations, but also conservative treatment as well and during those years in the first couple of years i tried to specialize in anterior knee pain it was an interest of mine and later on i after a couple of years i, I started working one day in one day a week as well at a rheumatologist and that was quite interesting as well to see different kinds of patients as well, different problems. And in 2017, I uh, started my own clinic. And also since 2017, I started working together with two urologists. And at that time, also the interest came in uh, male chronic pelvic pain or chronic prostatitis. And since the last four or five years, I'm, I'm also or mainly working also with these, uh, these patients which is quite interesting as well. And, and also an, an, uh, also a challenge for me as a, as a therapist to find out what is the best treatment strategy or the intervention strategy. Mm. So you've got diverse interests, anterior knee pain, musculoskeletal health, and your sports and musk masters that you did, we did together. And so then was that just a, a bit of luck or was that some planning that you worked with rheumatologists and when you set up your, your clinic, what, how no. did that come to be? Sometimes it's just a little bit of. Sorry, of, I just I, I said rheumatologist. I meant the two urologists that you worked with when you set up your clinic. Yeah. Yeah, 
Yeah, so it's a little bit of, of a yeah, coincidence. So in one way, it's just uh, when you work for a couple of years in a certain area, it's always see, to see something else, to see uh, sometimes different kind of patients with different complaints and, and you try to treat them. Also a little bit to challenge yourself and, and see something new and, and get a little bit out of your comfort zone. And with the urologist, it was just, um, yeah, it's just, we had a mutual friend and he was looking for a therapist who was working in this area. So then we got in contact and then he referred the patients to me. And in the beginning, um, you also see a little bit of your direction you go. In the beginning, it was really mechanical. He really looked at, uh, for example, the chronic malpelvic pain. What are the, the issues? What are the impairments around the hip, about the pelvic, the soft tissues? With the osteopathy was mainly as also the uh, visceral manipulation of the bladder and so on. And at a certain time, you take you a certain group of patients you were successful with, the other people were so la la, and so people didn't help at all. And then with the, also the master of the UniSA, you, you, you learned how to find your own evidence or so your evidence of, of, of the, the papers. So you start reading a little bit more, you start ordering books, so you're reading more and more. And, and then you're, you're going a little bit away from just the mechanical part to take a step back. And you have to look as well as perhaps there are some ideas or some, some misinformation which aggravate the factors as well. And then you are you were looking for some, for example, some podcasts or also some books which you could recommend to patients whether you know you have the right information on it. And this is how you grew into it and your, your knowledge got better and better. And then you're starting to structure your knowledge to also to give provide the right information to the patient and also to provide the best treatment as possible for, uh, for the patient. Hmm. So male pelvic health is an area that it's fair to say that there's probably not enough clinicians working in. You're working in an area that has a, a real demand for it and there's a real burden of this problem for people. So what, um, what trouble does it cause for people? Let's talk specifics about this condition. So, so what is uh, um, chronic is pelvic pain, prostatitis? Um, what is it and what problems does it cause people? Um, yeah, it's very different. So it could be really uh, a burning sensation in the, the pelvic area. It could be uh, also a numbness. It could be pain in the testicle area and the groin area. It could have uh, impact on, on the sexual function. It can have an impairment in the bladder function and the bladder function that they uh, have to go quite often to the toilet or it doesn't come anything out of the toilet or with the sexual function, it could be pain during an orgasm or after an orgasm. Uh, it could be pain with sitting. Uh, it could be a referred pain in, in, in the penis, the tip of the penis itself. And the challenge is, it is because if they go to, a, if they, as they already have the courage to go to a urologist, they, they look, of course, okay, what could be the cause of the problem? And they, first of all, they look at the, the, the prostate. Is there an, an inflammation going on? Is there a, is the size of the prostate perhaps bigger, which caused the, the problem? Is perhaps there's a tumor going on? Is there something with the bladder? Is there a low urinary uh, um, tract infection or something? So they have their list, which they, they strike off. And, they, and if they don't find any uh, quite explanation for the problem, and when they have, um, they usually get antibiotics, or when they find something, they get antibiotics as well. That's usually the main treatment. But if their symptoms doesn't improve, then yeah, when you have a little bit of bad luck, some irritants, they don't know anything else. And then the, some patients are going to shop and they go to the next urologist and perhaps they get another antibiotics, they get the same examinations again, or 
and at one certain point, you could they have examination, perhaps it could be harmful for them as well or completely useless for them. And that's a little bit of the gray area because you have the structural problem and then you have a little perhaps the functional problem with it. And that's a little bit of the area where I step in on the gray area. And you try to find them help. So it goes like, what could be other issues would have an influence or uh, why are these symptoms perhaps the the, uh, the main cause? Perhaps it was an inflammation. The inflammation is gone. Why are still the symptoms over there? Mm. And then you come a little bit in the chronic pain area and perhaps a little bit of the central sensitation area that the, the nervous system is, 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 uh, is too uh, sensible, sensitive, and process the information a little bit wrong. Mm. And that's a little bit of the area where you're you're trying to uh, yeah to, to help them and the challenge is as me as a therapist because you are looking for information as well perhaps you want to take a course as well is that the main courses about pelvic health are for females and the main courses for uh, I say the, the pelvic area the pelvic muscles are also for for females and if they are any courses for males it's more mainly about a prostatectomy when the prostate is removed after perhaps uh, a cancer cells are found in it but when you really have a male chronic pelvic pain, whereas we have a 19-year-old who has continuous pain all day, there is not really a uh, yeah, and, and a course which you can take. And you have to find a little bit for you find have the right books or the right podcast. In the last two, three years, it get, it's getting better, but it's mm. still a quite a challenge. So in, and it's also not known by many therapists, but also not known by many urologists which makes it also quite frustrating for the patient itself. Mm, Where that do could I, be, I can imagine that would be a really frustrating pathway to be on, especially when you said they're shopping between urologists and looking for treatments. And then the more that that happens, the more the, the condition is going on and they're yeah. not getting solution, not getting the education they need. I like it when you said that they need the courage to go to the urologist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a really interesting choice of word there in that. Uh, it's um, definitely encouraging. Because it's okay when you have low back pain or you have a knee pain, then for example, you're meeting your, your friends, they are oh, my back hurts and, and my back aches, and, and mm. what should I do? And someone says, Oh, I know a good therapist, or I take a massage, or go to that doctor. And this is an area when you say, Well, um, I have so many pain in my, in my testicles, or anything, you, you don't really talk with anybody about it. And even if you're in a relationship with your partner, it could be quite a lot of shame of it uh, as well. And then to take that step and to have an examine it. And for example, when you have testicle pain, now Google it. The first thing what you find is testicle cancer. Mm. And of course the alarm bells goes off and, and it creates perhaps more pain. Right. And when they have the courage to go to a urologist and perhaps they say, and then it's checked and they say, it's all fine. There's no cancer. But some, some people, the alarm system goes off and it's fine and they go out and they don't have the pain anymore. But other people, they have the feeling, well, perhaps he didn't find it or, he didn't uh, uh, look for it carefully. So that's that's one part. But the other part is as well, when you look at the research which is done on male chronic pelvic pain, is perhaps the last 20 years. And uh, when you look at what could be uh, aggravating factors, for example, horse riding, yeah, when you look at the, the mankind, how long we have been horse riding. And so you, you probably would expect that that problem would be m- way longer than the last 20 years or perhaps 30 years. So it's not really an, an issue which has been discussed. It's not really an issue where there's a lot of information about it. 
Mm. And that's why it's, 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 uh, and if you compare it with uh, female pelvic health or female uh, chronic pelvic pain, that's been much more research and there's much more knowledge and, and more, uh, yeah, more doctors know about it. But for mm. the main male pelvic health or chronic pelvic pain, it's, it's, it's still a, you have a little, yeah, black holes, a little bit quite negative, but it's still a really big gray area. And it doesn't help that um, men can sometimes be less inclined to go to the doctor and and check things out. I mean, I'm really yeah. I'm really at pains here to point out that this is a, a podcast for health professionals, and you know, I did that little disclaimer at the beginning here. But um, you know, I think it's well, I think we're on fairly safe ground here saying that anybody listening to this, if you have any doubt whatsoever, and you could be a health professional or a patient, and you have any of these symptoms, if in doubt, get it checked out, you know, and go and see your doctor. But of course, you you know, you might, you may end up on a bit of a frustrating journey between people, but um, until you find the right person who can help you, but hopefully by having podcast episode, you mentioned podcasts before having a podcast episode like this on this topic, um, you know, more and more discussions we can normalize and and make it um a safe space to talk about this stuff for men around the world so you know if in doubt get it checked out if i talk to physio students and and i shouldn't say physio because you're a physio and an osteo it could be a health professional of any sort it's just that i specifically teach first year physio students and we've just been through lumbar spine red flags and um bowel and bladder questions is yesterday spent a lot of time mm-hmm. on it and so and that's what you talked about so those screening questions for the bladder and the bowel so st- you mentioned stopping and starting the flow of urine fecal incontinence um, sexual function pain and pain with sitting so with um do you have any tips for students for the, sometimes it can be a tricky area to talk about for the therapist as well um so having a bit of a script can sometimes help and something that you practice mm-hmm. saying and a way of saying it. Do you have any tips for asking these questions that are a more sensitive nature? Um, because you do have to ask them. You have to ask every patient who comes in with a lower back pain. You need to screen them for bowel and bladder and, and pelvic health. You can't just assume that they, they have back pain, leg pain, and the pelvis is fine. That's actually a part of the, the body yep. that you need to screen for, right? So any tips for students for... Asking these um, questions routinely. Yeah, so as you mentioned before, it is it is quite challenging. And I even when what we mentioned before, if the patient has the courage to go to a urologist and he takes the next step and comes to me, it's they still have a hard time to talk about it. And meaning, so when I ask them where does it hurt, and they say that down below it hurts, they go where mm. does it hurt in the penis, in in the testicles, in in which area, in the groin area, and so on. And it was still. I had a, yeah, still the answers were not really satisfying. It was not really also for the patient quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So in one way, it's 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 when they come to me. So it's sometimes you have to adapt a little bit on the words they are using. So when they talk about uh, not about the penis, but for example about the dick, then you try to word try to use that word as well to stay on the same level that you talk about the same things. And my solution in general was a little bit, I use uh, questionaries. So you have the National Health uh, Chronic Prostatitis Questionary. Or the okay, NH- so it's just a, a validated patient reported outcome or questionnaire that you can give to them and, and break the ice with that conversation. Yeah. And they tick yes and to something and you say, okay, let's talk about this more. 
Exactly. So then you have the four points where it could be painful. It could also you have the, a little bit about the going to the toilet, but also uh, a little bit about how many, uh, how much of the time you think of it. How is your quality of life at the moment? Mm. And I think that's a little bit quite important in this area because it's really hard to get, um, I say, assessment and reassessment tools. That you say, okay, how much does it hurt or how you're impaired? And because it's a hard time to talk about it, it's really hard to settle a baseline. And by making yeah, a little bit, they have to make a choice. They have to sign, okay, yes, it hurts, doesn't hurt from zero till 10. How much is it? And then you have at the end, you have to score. I think it's a, a maximum is, is uh, I think it's a 49 or something or 59. Then you, you look at how much they have and then you can compare it with the next time. And that's a little bit in both ways as well, because if it's improving, then you can give them positive feedback. Look what you did the last couple of weeks or two weeks and that improves. So please continue that. And even if it's get aggravating, then you, you ask the question, okay, what you did the last couple of Day. So what, what could be, could it be a stressful event? Did you move less or couldn't do your exercises? So that's a little bit of an area where I, where I got good with it. It's just the questionnaire. And then when something is really notable on the questionnaire or when they want to say, when they want to talk about a certain topic or, or a certain question, then you just listen to them and then you go a little bit deeper in it. Mm. But the difference for me, of course, is that they come from a urologist and so they have this that's i think a bit different than when they come from the orthopedics i know from they have with the mri scan of the lower back and they come then to you and then when you ask something about their the pelvic area or that area or sexual health sexual it could be a little bit too much confronting in one way with me they expect it a little bit but it's still hard to talk about it right because the expectations as a of what you're you know, managing expectations is so important and the expectations of what you think you're going to get out of a therapeutic consultation can determine so much of your, your buy-in and your, um, you know, your approach to it. And as a patient, so that's, that's a really interesting point. So, I mean, so what, what do you, what sort of conversations do you have to lead into some of these questions? Do you, for example, say, well, do you sort of explain first that this is the problem and, and if I, I can help you, if I can ask you some of these questions and some of them are, are going to be, make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then of course, you're going to get consent to talk about these. And I always talk with the students about getting your overall consent for generally for the, the appointment, generally to touch the patient, to, to expose the part as a general thing and explaining what you're doing as a physiotherapist, don't assume, but also um, just that when you go to, it could be as simple as if you're going to be doing some palpation under the, the axilla, under the armpit, okay, near the breast or in the groin, okay, extra level of consent. So there's mm-hmm. an extra question there. So explaining exactly what you want to do and why and giving the person an opportunity to say no is just so important um, yep. for, for so many reasons. So, so with these questions, it might be the same. Do you, do you sort of talk to them and provide a bit of a lead in first before you ask the more yeah. sensitive questions? Well, in the beginning, it, it's also says a couple of things. So one way you do your subjective examination, when you have the feeling in certain areas, there's a lot of resistance or they, you have the feeling they don't want to talk about it at that moment. Sometimes you, can, sometimes you need to build up a, a relationship. You know, you, they need mm. to have some confidence in you as well. And just mainly what I do in the beginning is, is uh, so when we finish the subject examination, then you usually go in, so, okay, do you want to have an... Um, uh, is it okay when I talk to you about another explanation about your complaints? That it's not only mechanical, it's not only the prostate. 
It could be also your nervous system. It could be the central sensitation. So the example, which I always, uh, I, I got it from a course as well. I learned it from, from somebody else, but it's a good example. The first question is, 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 are you wearing any socks today? And then, okay. so usually they say, yes. It's like, how do you know? And they say, I feel the socks. And it's like, hey, for five minutes ago, did you felt the socks as well? And it's like, no, not really. So I was like, what, what happened then? It's like, oh, yeah, I, got, I noticed it. You, I, mm. I, I focused my attention to it. And then you really try to induce, okay, that's the way the nervous system works. And that's a little bit of going, then I start with my radio. So when you have the volume of your radio, you can put it up. You can really loud or you can turn it down. And then the second question is always, okay, which organ is, 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 has influence on the, on the volume? And then usually they say it's, it's the brain. Yeah, and say so the brain that we can influence. We, we, and then, so that's a little bit of the basic introductions to it. And then we start with, okay, what other influence can I help you with, with by turning up or, or, or lowering down the volume? And that's in, in, in my first treatment is a little bit about uh, certain movements, trying to get movement again in that area. So actually not, not really hands-on. And then the second part, or the, and then a little bit of the part, so okay, what uh, of your daily, of your lifestyle, uh, uh, what kind of products do you eat? What, what kind of, uh, do you drink? Uh, how is your physical activity or the inactivity? Uh, and then also a little bit perhaps about the ideas or what's, what's the source of the information. I mean, everybody Googled it, but what did they Google? Which forum? Uh, what kind of information they got out? And then you ask them, okay, when you, when you look at Dr. Google, how does it work? Does it put the volume up or does the volume down? And then when they say it goes up, it's okay, then try it as good as possible to avoid it or try to read this or listen to this podcast. And that part can help you by turning down the music. To go on the internet and discovering things that may or may not be true and, and always getting the worst news first, that can Definitely. really feed into the, the pain experience for people, particularly with this problem, given yep. its sensitive nature. And it's, and perhaps you mentioned almost shame, I think you said before, for people having difficulties talking about and um, coming forward with these, these things. Once they come forward with it, is there a sense of relief? Have they broken the ice and they've got some answers and is there are they moving forward then is it um a different experience for them it is as the first step is that's always then you go a little bit about the change so when you have to do some changes in their uh, lifestyle in the dietary perhaps the sleep management perhaps the stress management uh and so on so the first step is it's where they feel a line of relief or perhaps some hope from oh i i can do some things about it but then the challenge becomes okay uh when I come at home after work, I, mean, I shouldn't lie on the sofa and watch Netflix. Perhaps I have to do some stretching exercises or I have to do some perhaps some trigger points or perhaps do at that point some breathing exercises instead of lying on the sofa and watch Netflix. Or when you say, well, I know alcohol, uh, because like a glass of alcohol can, can uh, ease off it a little bit, but I drink two or three glasses of alcohol, it could next day could aggravate it. But when it's football on telly and it's an important game, I always drink a beer with it. So <laughs> mm. I have to change my pattern with it. And that's and a little bit. that awareness of that that they may not be aware of before. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, and that's, that's the biggest challenge. And that's usually from the first of the second treatment, you usually see a little bit, you see an improvement. And then the hard part comes with the, the, perhaps the third treatment, because then it takes a longer period over time to make those changes. And especially when we talk about the noise and about our radio, those slow nerves also takes time before it settles down. 
and it's easily and then uh, also a flare-up starts come popping up and then it's like what are you going to do when the flare-up is and those are a little bit of other challenges and then you have to as a therapist you have to really focus on the positive so when you say you have a flare-up it usually means you have a a period which was better and then it gets a little bit worse and then perhaps it gets better again and that's a little bit where you have to focus on the peers okay you have two three days no complaints then the complaints start again okay now we have to focus not only three days perhaps five days and you try to make it a little bit bigger and bigger and that's that's also a little bit of the challenge that they yeah because it's a long history they get frustrated with it uh it's hard and that's a little bit of, of uh, those life changings, what they have to make. And, and yeah, every change is a factor of learning. And you, you're not, everything you learn, you, it goes with some error in the beginning. Mm. And so a big part of what you do is addressing psychosocial factors and lifestyle factors. Well, you mentioned yeah. structure and function early on, but thinking about the person's lifestyle and their, um, you know, and these contributing factors. And then you also mentioned behavior change and motivational interviewing earlier. Yeah. And so, so, so in terms of behavior change, so what are you, some of your strategies that you use? So, so this is not something that we get a lot of training on, you mm-hmm. know, um, we, we tend to have a, a biomedical model nowadays. There's much more of a psychos biopsychosocial, um, influence over the training of therapists, but still a lot of it, you, you learn from being in the, the trenches and working with people, right? It is. So, um, so how do you, how do you go about, you've already touched on some of this, but perhaps the, the specific techniques you use for people to to help them to make those changes. Well, the, 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 yeah. So, so the behavioral changes, you always start slow or small steps. So, mm. for example, when, when you say uh, when you're at home, don't take the lift, take the stairs. Uh, when you go by public transportation, get out uh, uh, sooner, uh, one stop ahead of it, and you walk that area towards. Or when you go in the shower every day in the morning, you just start moving your pelvic area and do it 30 times in, in every direction. And you have those small parts already during the day integrated, but it's, it's like not much a, a big uh, change or it's easy to do and it's, it could be fun as well to do. And then it's a little bit, the next step is a little bit of the, the, the a little bit of the motivational interviewing is, I think every therapist knows it as a, as a therapist or as a healthcare provider is, you know, the solution. <laughs> And then you think you sometimes think, oh, it's so easy. If you just do that, then you don't have the problem anymore. And then you think, so why, why is it not happening? Why are you not doing it? And that's a little bit was uh, it's it's when you start reading in it and perhaps taking some courses, it's like uh, the motivation has to come from itself. And then you can mm-hmm. ask questions like, uh, okay, uh, if you don't change anything, what would be the benefit of it? What mm-hmm. would be the benefit if it stays like this? And then not really focusing quite on the negative, I mean, so then it, it must be some benefit or else perhaps you would change it. So, so yeah, it's, it's easy to watch Netflix, for example, or it's, it's, uh, it's not so hard. It's easy to do. It's easy, you know, the, the road of less resistance. And then you ask them, okay, what would be the benefits of changing it? So, yeah, less pain. Uh, I can perhaps see my friends more easier. Uh, I can do more sports. So I can do more that. And then you try to find out, okay, what does it what, which had more weight in it? What I mean is, is it more important for you to do to see the benefits of changing it, or is it the benefit of not changing it? And so you're trying a little bit of the uh, with also a little bit of the central processing activation as well, and that they they hear it themselves and they work it out themselves. And 
And I think the other thing for me is really important that you have the background information that a change sometimes can take up to six months. So a change is not something from the first to the second appointment or the, from the second to the, to the fifth appointment. It could take, so it has to grow a little bit and they have to try it out a little bit and then it grows and grows and grows. And at one point it, it's, it's normal again. It's not, it doesn't feel like it's a, it's a big effort. And I think that's also an important information that you're, we, we, we're sometimes expecting too fast a change. And that's uh, sometimes mm. not realistic. Managing those expectations. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's a really nice summary of what motivational interviewing is. Sometimes I think it might be conflated, but with the, the, the assessment, so that the patient interview, the information gathering exercise, and then patient education is often, you know, it can be delivered sort of didactically, just delivered to someone. Oh. The white coat will be telling you what to do and here's your education and now you know. But what you're describing there is, uh, uh, is really uh, empowering for the person yeah. because you're getting them to think of their entertain the idea and change from the top, from the brain down, what it might is. be different? How could things be different for me? And getting that intrinsic motivation is a nice summary. It is because it's, it's usually the problem is not the, the information. It's usually not the lack of information. When you see mm. uh, it, sometimes it is with chronic pelvic pain that they get the right information, but sometimes with other problems by uh, being uh, perhaps uh, overweight or physical inactivity, they know it's not good for them. They know they have to change something. So the information is already there. And when you focus with your patient education too much on you have to do it because of that or that or that, that's usually you create resistance and usually they or they disagree and straight ahead of you and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Or they say, mm-hmm, and then and they go out of it and they don't do it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit so the collaborative approach is important to see how can you motivate it. And that's for the patient important, but for you also as a therapist, especially for the long run, is when you have a couple of those patients during a day it could be quite frustrating. And when you have, uh, when you try to find a collaborative approach, then you know, okay, that's the part of the patient. I can help him. I can be his guide, but it's not my responsibility. Mm. That's, I think that's, it's also uh, important as a therapist to know. So, yeah. And it, sometimes it's really helpful to hear other people talking about this because if you're practicing on your own with a patient, and that's some deep reflection that you're doing there. And, and, and I'm sure others, other therapists and potentially students listening to this have come across that frustration and, and there, there is a different approach. Um, tell me about, let's talk about evidence. We'll do a segue to some of your um, research that you've done, but clinical guidelines, is there anything for male chronic um, pelvic pain um, or health um, that we could refer people to? Any clinical guidelines or we're at that stage no. yet? No, no. So, so one point where the, the urologists are, that's moment that they uh, one way recognize uh, of, of the, 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 the male chronic pelvic pain. That's, that's uh, also that they know what, what's the definition of it, what are the symptoms are. And so if you have a, for a longer period than three months in the last six months, if you have these complaints, that will be fit in the male chronic pelvic pain. So that's a little bit of the first step. And then also the symptoms, what they have. And then it's a little bit what they do is a little bit it's the U-point system. It's a little bit of the urethrine tract. Is there anything wrong with is the psychologic anything wrong? Obstruction, infection, could be therapy, uh, could be neural, that's the end. And they look a little bit at those spots as well. And that's a little bit quite 
general, it's not really worked out. I mean, it, it's good. It's a very, very good start. But a guideline what we say, okay, that's the way to go for uh, for male chronic pelvic pain. No. So it's it's also for a little bit for the most therapists, also the experts we have worldwide, is you have a little bit of the ingredients, what everybody put in, you know, it's important. But a guidelines uh, until now, no, not that I know of. Yeah, and the same in um, women's health and with um, the, you know, it's a, it's a really rapidly developing area. And um, there's a lot of groups, there's some leaders in the world who are doing a lot of work there. And um, I guess it's a watch this space thing in terms of an overarching guidelines. And, but what we'll do is we'll put that diagnosis um, um, summary that you just had there in the show notes for people so they can look that up. And oh. yeah, and let's talk about evidence-based practice in general then, because part it's just a bit of a double meaning with physio foundations. It's foundational knowledge and skills, but it, I'm always trying to look at the foundational pathway if I've got an expert, someone who's been doing this for 20 years and there's some students or new grads listening, I really want them to see you know, where you can go and some of the stuff that you can do as a, a clinician to, to build yourself up. So we, we know already what you've, di- you've done in terms of your qualifications, you've done undergrad degrees and masters um, and, um, and lots of you know, broad clinical practice. So in the masters you did, um, we did together, the University of South Australia. So you, de- you developed some evidence-based practice skills in that course. So that was your first your master's by coursework that you did. And then mm-hmm. you've gone on to publish some papers, which is pretty cool. Congratulations. Yeah. Tell us a bit yeah. about those, um, about those, the case studies that you've published. So, uh, so the first one, uh, so the, the, the case study was about, uh, so in general, it's, it's uh, in Europe, the visual manipulation. So as a tr- part of the treatment or the visual mobilization of the treatment it, at the treatment is, is quite popular. So you have many courses. It's a part of the osteopathy, osteopathy um, philosophy and also the treatment strategy as well. And you have also many therapists who are uh, visual therapists who are doing these courses as well. And the thing is, what I was surprised about is that you have a lot of people doing it. There is some research Coming is a little bit off. That was the first uh, publication we did together as a systematic review of the, of the, um, so for the low back pain. Does visceral manipulation benefit people with low back pain? And there is some evidence for it, some, some, some small evidence that it could help a little bit. And the idea behind it is that the interesting part is one way you're finding the articles. But I think what I was quite interesting at about is about is, is the introduction is a little bit to see if, um, is what we've learned in the education about it, about the referred pain, about the, uh, about the, um, I say the the uh, innovation of the, for example, uh, of the bladder in combination with the thoralumbaral spine, thoralumbaral spine. So that could be um, so the the innovation towards it could give an overload. It could be some some tissue changes, as in of myotome, dermatome changes, and so on. And you find out when you look at it, there's, there's also not much information or not really much research done about it. So the main group who did it are the, as a group of doctors, but they mainly looked at, for example, diseases or, uh, for example, heart attacks. When you have somebody have a heart attack, they have referred pain to the left shoulder or to the jaw or something. Or when you have a rupture of the spleen, they have usually they could be have ace or they could have uh, left shoulder pain uh, without any mechanical restrictions or impairments with it. And the idea of visceral manipulation is that people without a uh, rupture of the spleen could also have a referred pain in the shoulder or the right shoulder could be the liver. 
And when you mobilize it, you can also uh, increase or decrease the sensitivity in the shoulder. And that was my, uh, my second paper was the case study of uh, a patient of mine who had a, uh, increased uh, spleen actually it was quite big 14 centimeters long and it was a, a size of the of the of the spleen and she came in with uh, not even shoulder pain she came with thoracic spine pain and that was quite interesting to see and as you went to the GP and it, of course you have to take account that the GPs don't have much time they have, they have to look at it quickly they have to have five minutes and they yeah she only got some antidepressive medications and then uh, she went over to me and then you uh, one way you looked at the back you also looked at, at the, the abdominal area and then you found around the the, the left side the the uh, heart structure the diaphragma was completely uh tense that also the heart structure around the stomach area in that way and then yeah we had the feeling um, something is not right and then uh, i referred it back then she had gotten uh, x-ray made of it and so you also see in the paper then you see really yeah, the, a big spleen calcification of the spleen and that was Actually, for me, quite imp impressive. Now, but it was surprisingly that, that something that big could stay for long, such a long period over mm -hmm. time. And she had no history of uh, of an injury or accident or trauma in that way. And I think that way it's always helpful when uh, such a case study to bring it out. It's it's uh, it has of course many for for the intern validity many flaws, but for the external validity to to bring it in in the praxis. It could be really helpful that many uh, osteopaths or physiotherapists who are working with it always have in mind, okay, sometimes we can find something that perhaps uh, is missed by a GP, which it's, it's quite normal. It's nothing bad in that way, but they will always have to keep in mind from there could be something else as well. And then mm -hmm. at the right time, refer them and that they mm -hmm. don't get unnecessary treatment or even harmful treatment, yeah. which, which could aggravate it or uh, could be, uh, yeah, could be except also life-threatening. It's a really I think, important story there about differential diagnosis. And the key thing you said there at the end was if it's not improving, it's not responding to treatment or it's not fitting a pattern. And of course, you've got all your red flag questions that you ask and and you know, there's pressures on time and everything. But if you only had two minutes, that's where you start with those differential diagnosis and those red flag questions. So it, yeah. it started off with thoracic pain. And, and it, so this person can very easily spend quite a long time having um, – treatment for their thoracic spine they may or may not have improvement which might correlate with with symptoms so it, it i guess the point is this can easily be missed if we're not considering the first of all the red flag screening and, and also looking at the person more holistically looking at their not just their back but think about their organs as well and sometimes it could be i mean with her some things were really mechanical so when she was standing mm. up for a long period of time she got the pain increased that's then tricky, when she was lying when she was lying on the right side, the pain increased. She felt uh, nausea as well. So in one point, you think, well, that's, it's quite mechanical as well. So it doesn't mm -hmm. really sound in that way as a, as a classical red flag. But it, in my experience, what I had with red flags, usually it was, um, I think always it's a little bit of the gut feelings. Mm -hmm. It is when a patient comes in and tells their stories, you, you have your classical red flag questions. But yeah. Usually there's some, there's some gut feelings say like, something is not right here something is 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 not yeah something is missing something is not and i always when i have that feeling i just say well just perhaps, perhaps do those examination go back to the doctor and just check it off a little bit more and when i have that information then i can, can uh, 
I can do a safe treatment. But I think yeah. the gut feeling is 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 uh, is not really evidence based. But I think it's a really important factor. Well, it's when, not just uh, the gut feeling. It's it's not um, it's not just something you can't define. It's really that's coming from the history. Mm-hmm. As you said, this person wasn't responding to treatment. Okay, a mixed mixture of inflammatory mechanical sort of signs, and there was some that were that really looked mechanical. And it's always there always can be things that are misleading and tricky. But yep. um, this was she wasn't responding to treatment in the in the usual way. So, so it sort of comes from the history rather than screening red flag questions. But yeah, hey, and, as well. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, look, this is, this is really interesting and really valuable stuff. I feel like inviting you back for another one and we can pr- perhaps, in, yeah, we can go through um, chronic prostatitis. We can go through, you know, some, a little bit more of the um, pathophysiology there as well. And there's so much more we can discuss. Um, let's, let's finish up there, but there's a question that you wanted to ask you that's not related to male chronic pelvic health. So um, big respect for you for doing uh, this podcast. You, you speak three languages. Yep. Is that right? So, so I, what's your preferred language? Well, uh, it means so I got some flaws in all three languages. <laughs> I speak uh, Dutch. That's uh, what I was my first language. Then I speak English, and then I speak. Uh, so at work in Vienna, I mainly speak German, and sometimes you have some patients as well as where you speak. Uh, I speak English with. So those those three languages I speak. I want to shout out to you and all the students I work with who are, who manage all this terminology and patient communication and all these really complex, um, um, like a psychosocial issues, for example, and um, all the terminology, you know, in different languages and you're switching between patients in the, in the clinic. That's pretty impressive. So it's something that you don't get as much in Australia. You, you do, you get people who, who speak multiple languages, but it's, it's um, common in Europe to actually uh, yeah. to know multiple yeah. languages, isn't it? It's just sort of everyone has I to speak think. a bit of English and Dutch yeah, and English German. Is, so I think everybody speaks English as a second language. So if you're not yeah. a native English speaker, but the rest is, I mean, English is one of them and, and I speak three, but many speak four or five languages as well. Mm. So this, the challenge sometimes is, especially when, um, is when you're talking with patients, is to find the right words and also that you... So the translation in your own mind is sometimes not really quite correct. And that's also, uh, and that could be sometimes a little bit of a miscommunication, uh, could be of, of, of that the information is not coming through what you, what you try to do. And that's, that's always, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes a challenge as well. This could be an advantage, sometimes could be a challenge also. No, I mean, you've done a great job with it. There's also nonverbal communication as well and personality and connecting with people in other ways. But yeah, that's, um, it's a challenge for the students as well who are doing this in another language. So big respect to you. So um, we're, I feel like we're at the end. So listeners, once again, if you found this interesting, do um, all the things we want you to do. So like, and share and subscribe and all of that. Otherwise these episodes tend to not travel very far they it's all very much by word of mouth and referral so if you found particularly this interest this episode really interesting and relevant to your practice and there's someone else who will find it useful please just email them the link or 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 share it online on social media you can tag in um, Susanna and I at Periton Physio and you can find all the links to the podcast players on our website which is periton.physio and uh, final thoughts yeah any final thoughts we've covered Um, everything 
Uh, I think yeah. So I think for the when it's for students and also for for I think it's always good to be to stay open minded mm. and always be open for new information and um, also be I think critical is always good but negative is the wrong way. I think that's always a I think an important message that you're always stay open for new information. The, especially when we finished our course in two thousand and eight. And if you look at that 14 years, what changed already from, mm. from, from knowledge and also how the interventions changed. And that's, that's, uh, and I think as soon as you start, like, uh, we always did it like this. So why would we change right. that? Yeah. I think that's, uh, uh, I think when you say those words, it should be a wake up call. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be the beginning of the end. So yeah. Keeping, yeah, keeping an open mind, it's a really yeah. good way to finish it and, um, work hard and, diverse experience so we've got so much more to talk about let's do this again but for now thanks very much Yarp, for a really interesting conversation i hope that was helpful for everyone listening so until next time this is Yarp and luke wishing you all the very best with your studying professional development and lifelong learning <laughs>